We wish to welcome you who are our guests this morning. We rejoice that you've come to worship the Lord with us and trust that if in the ensuing hours you have questions or concerns about our service, our ministry, the things we preach, that you'll feel the freedom to ask us, that we may have an opportunity to further to explain what we are and why we're here and what things we hold precious. We would ask, if you've not done so, that if you would sign our guest book in the back before you leave so that we may have a record of your attendance and be able to give God thanks for your coming and to pray for you in the future. We have been, for your information, preaching a series of messages on the subject of the Holy Spirit. And our Lord's Day mornings have been occupied for some months on this vital and vast subject. We have spoken of the biblical witness regarding this subject, the idea of the gift and the indwelling of the Spirit, and the manifold benefits that come to the believer who is indwelt by the Spirit. Then last time we introduced the subject of the characteristics of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. And we stated, first of all, in a broad statement, that there is indeed an abiding evidence in every true believer in Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit lives in him. There is this evidence. But we qualified that statement further by saying that there is, in spite of this evidence, variety in degree, in strength, and in discernibility of the evidence and in addition to that, there is much false teaching and fuzzy thinking regarding the evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Then we ask the question, what then is the permanent evidence of the Spirit's indwelling the true believer? And we last week took up this question from the negative angle. We asked what it is not, or we answered the question, what is it not? What is not evidence that the Spirit indwells a person? And in the first place we saw that it is not evidence of the indwelling Spirit that a person is able to perform extraordinary feats or gifts. Extraordinary gifts are not evidence of the indwelling of the Spirit. And we showed biblically why that is the case. In the second place we saw that it is not the ability to live above known or conscious sin that gives evidence of the indwelling spirit. Just because a person claims to live above conscious sin does not support his testimony biblically. Living above known sin is not evidence of the spirit's indwelling. Nobody can in this world live above known sin. And in the third place, we noticed, and we spent some time here, that it is not the eradication of any particular sin that proves the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Not the eradication of any particular sin. And we sought to underscore that statement by noting how many ways people may get rid of certain bad habits, even avoid certain sins, and still be lost in their sin strangers to grace and have no experience in the ministry or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But today we come to take up the other side of the question. 
regarding the evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we want to ask it from a positive angle. What then is the evidence that you have the Holy Spirit living in you? If it is not living above known sin, if it is not the eradication of any particular sin, if it is not extraordinary gifts and manifestations of power, what then is it? And in order to do that, I want us to read in Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 5, this section of scripture, which I believe is one of the most clear and thorough summaries of this entire doctrine of evidence or manifestation of the indwelling spirit that we'll find in the Bible, beginning with verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3. Please follow as I read. Put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake comes the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience, wherein you also once walked when you lived in these things, but now do you also put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, railing, shameful speaking out of your mouth. Why not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his doings, and have put on the new man that is being renewed unto knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there cannot be Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bondman, freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as God's elect, holy and beloved, a heart of compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving each other, if any man have a complaint against any. Even as the Lord forgave you, so also do you. And above all, these things put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to the which also you were called in one body. And be you thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts unto God. And whatsoever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, through him. Please again join me, brethren, as we bow together and seek the Lord's help in opening up his word. Our Father, you know our need, and you know our weakness, and you know our hearts. And so we come and ask that you would, in the abundant supply of grace, that has been given us in Christ Jesus. Come near and help us and give us what we need. Lord, 
save us from a wasted hour in which we would sin through vain ritual, save us from mere words delivered dryly from an empty heart to two empty hearts, save us from business as usual, and come, O God, even as you have come in recent times, and make us to know your own voice in the inner man. Lord, assist the one whom you've appointed over this business today, and give help to those who sit under his ministry, that Christ may speak and we may hear. O God, give your spirit now. Do not withhold it from us because of our sins. Lord, do not give us what we deserve and do not feed us according to the proportion of the energy which we have exerted in seeking you. But come in grace, even as in the beginning when we were not seeking you, you sought us. Even today, O Lord, come and minister to our needs of soul for eternity. Hear our plea. Answer us for Christ's sake. Amen. What is positive evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Now remember that if you do not have the Holy Spirit living within you, that means that you're not a Christian. You are in your sin, still abiding under the wrath of God, and unless you repent and come to Christ in full conviction that he is the Savior and believing that he will save you, trusting in him alone, you will go to hell. Unless you turn from your love of sin and turn to Christ, you will be punished for eternity away from the presence of God in unspeakable, everlasting, unmitigated torment. If you have not the Spirit of Christ, you are none of his. And so it's vital to be able to ascertain if indeed we do have the Spirit of Christ. It's vital for us to know how to determine if there is evidence of Christ in us, which is the hope of our glory. And so we seek to underscore biblical principles and draw out something of scriptural doctrine as to the evidence of the indwelling Spirit. We believe that we have shucked aside some of the false and fuzzy thinking last Lord's Day when we cited some of the things that are not proofs of the Holy Spirit's abiding. I would say further this morning that one other thing we must not trust in as evidence of the Spirit's dwelling is our feelings. Certainly the Holy Spirit does produce response in the entire humanity. Certainly, emotions are affected by the work of God within. And certainly, the body is affected by the work of God. We are units. We are redeemed humans, body and soul. And when God does a work, He saves the whole man. That's why we look forward to the day when we get a new body. The Lord has not thrown off our body and given up on it. He's going to raise this vile body, transform it, and liken it to the glorious body of our Savior. And so we're not suggesting that you should never feel anything. We're not saying that if the Spirit's in you, you may well expect to live a life of very much dull, static, uh, not feelingless religion. We don't believe that that would be a good sign. However, we should not look, first of all, 
to the way we feel at any given time or season as biblical evidence that the Spirit indwells us. Because the Spirit can work upon us and we can feel great transcendent things and still be lost in our sins. The Spirit comes often in preaching and we feel the emotion. And some people have been known to have radical changes take place in their lives because of that influence of God upon them, yet short of real repentance and thorough faith. So I just wanted to give that further disclaimer. The way you feel is not good biblical evidence as to the indwelling or the absence of the Holy Spirit. You must look further and look at more objective evidence. And that's what I hope to do this morning with you. Now, in the first place, I want to state there are three areas of, I believe, of evidence that can give us some measure of confidence that the Spirit of Christ lives within us. They are these. First of all, a desire and capacity for service in God's church. A desire and capacity for service in God's church is evidence of the Spirit's indwelling. We've called him in our breakdown of his ministry the quartermaster of service. Where there is the Spirit, there is desire and ability to serve the church of Christ and to serve Christ in the church. Where there is not the ability, and where there is not the desire, there is not the indwelling Spirit. Where the Spirit is present in a life, that life has a measure of longing to serve the church of Christ, and thus serve Christ. And there is a gift available to enable that person to do so. We'll expound it in a minute. The second evidence, though, which we seek to look at this morning, is that when the Spirit indwells a person, there will be found in that person a love for and an apprehension of divine truth. A love for and an apprehension of divine truth. Evidence of the Spirit's indwelling. In the third place, we'll seek to unfold what I believe is the most obvious and most prolific evidence of the Spirit's indwelling. There will be in the life of every true saint, all of whom are indwelt by the Spirit, a pursuit of and growth in holy living. A pursuit of and growth in holy living. In other words, fruit. The first element of our study then is that there will be in the person indwelt by God the Spirit a desire and capacity for service in God's church. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It is at this time not our intention in the eldership to teach through all this subject of the gifts of the Spirit at this time. 
There are several reasons. We've dealt with this before in the church a couple of times at some length. And we believe that if we, if we make clear the basic elements that are true here, there won't be as much need for the integral working out of all those details that have caused so much division and concern in the history of the church. But one of the principles, and perhaps the central principle of this section of 1 Corinthians, is seen in chapter 12, verse 7. To each one, describing those who are in the church of Christ, is given the manifestation of the Spirit to profit with all. The statement made here is that there are diversities of gifts and manifestations of the Spirit in a church. The church is made up of people who were baptized by one Spirit into one body. And that baptism has caused them all to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In verse 3 we're told, I make known to you that no man speaking in the Spirit of God, says Jesus, is anathema. And no man can say Jesus is Lord, but in the Holy Spirit. What he's saying there is not that it is impossible to speak the words Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. He's saying that no man from a true confession of an honest heart can live a life that expresses the testimony and is convinced that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the work of the Spirit. And so the church is made up of people, as we've seen, who confess Christ is Lord, show evidence of that confession in the way they live, and they are the ones inhabited by the Spirit. They are being built up into a holy temple, a habitation of God through the Spirit. And so, if the Spirit's among them, we look for further things that we may expect to find in a church like that. Christ is Lord. They have a mutual confession of that. The Spirit indwells them, and He diversifies the gifts among them, and in various ways shows evidence of His work and presence. But, one thing is clear, that is the possession of every single one. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Everyone has some element of what we're discussing in chapter 12 in the area of gifts and service. And what is the purpose? Verse 7, To everyone is given the manifestation of the Spirit to profit with all. Not just to profit himself, but to profit everyone in the church. The Spirit of God comes into the heart upon faith in Christ and one of the things that he brings is a desire and a capacity, we may call it a gift, to serve the church to its profit. In everyone who has united with Christ, who is a member of the church of Christ in reality, there is this desire, this tendency, this ability planted to serve to the profit of the whole church. That's the statement that we're making. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 12 as we unfold to a, a bit more degree this principle, this profiting of all, the spirit and the attitude of a person in whom God dwells. And brethren, I've made this first because it is missed throughout Christendom. There are vast hosts 
of professing Christians who have no desire to exercise gifts to the profit of others, who have no thought of serving Christ in his church, who have no evidence that they were ever given any sort of gift to do such a thing, but have confidence they're on the way to heaven. I understand my Bible to teach that where that desire is absent, the Spirit is absent, and you know not Christ. There is in every true believer a basic desire and some capacity to serve Christ in the church. In every believer. And you can see that desire. Chapter 12, verse 3 of Romans. I say through the grace that was given me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but so to think as to think soberly. The, the thing here is holy, sober, accurate self-assessment. He's appealing to us not to overestimate ourselves, but to think soberly. The word literally means sanely rationally, intelligently, accurately, with some sort of perceived wisdom and discernment, according as God has dealt to each man a measure of faith. The assumption there is, he's not dealt to all of us the same measure. Not all of us are equally gifted in every area. It is not the responsibility of any of us to measure up to somebody else's capacity or to worry about whether we do. God has measured the gift according to the gift of Christ, according to his own will. But we must learn to assess our own place, our own gift, our own ability, our own self, accurately and soberly. And then he goes on to describe this in verse 4. <coughs> For even as we have many members in one body, and he's speaking of the human body, and all the members have not the same office, so we, speaking of the body of Christ, who are many, are one body in Christ, and severally members one of another. And in verse 6 he says, we're having gifts differing. We're not all the same. One of the marks of a cult is that uniformity is enforced. One man has defined ty tyranny as being enforced uniformity. That is not the mark of the New Testament church. There is authority in the church, but not uniformity. There is unity, but we're not all alike. We don't all have the same gifts. We're not expected to have all the same gifts. Having gifts differing according to the grace that was given us. If you have a gift, it's by grace you have it. If another man has a greater or a lesser one, it's by grace he has it. It was God's decision. It was not that person's decision. It was not something he got by asking particularly. It was something given when the Spirit came. It is a part and parcel of his makeup as a redeemed man or her makeup as a redeemed woman. And it was given according to grace. And then he lists some of them. Whether prophecy, if you have that gift of foretelling the truth of God, and in this context it may have included extraordinary revelatory gifts, 
but broken down over the history of the church, it essentially means, whether extraordinary or not, the ability to preach the truth in a way that possesses the minds and captivates the will and the response of men. A gift, a proclamation. If you have that one, do it according to the proportion of our faith. Or ministry, service. Let us give ourselves to our ministry. Or he that teaches to his teaching. Or he that exhorts to his exhorting. He that gives. Let him do it with liberality or singleness of mind. He that rules with diligence. He that shows mercy with cheerfulness. And he goes through the list. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. And on and on down through these these admonitions regarding the, the attitude and the assessment of a saint. But he's listed as sort of sampling of various kinds of ministries and gifts in the church. And in each one, he's saying, if you have this one, you're to give yourself to that one. You're not to try to be all things to all men, nor to over-assess your gifts, nor to under-assess them. You're to think soberly. It is not noble so to put yourself down that you say, I'm worth nothing. I don't want to serve in the church. I don't have anything. I'm not like this man or that woman, and therefore I'll stay in the background. That's not humility. That's an improper self-assessment. That's not sober judgment. If you're a Christian, you have a gift. And if you've decided you don't have one, you've decided the Scriptures aren't true. You're in error in your thinking. And you're in error in your practice. It is the place of every believer to be doing something that will benefit the church of Christ. Now the point I'm making is that some don't seem to have that desire or that capacity. Now is it because you have misapprehended biblical doctrine and have not thought of yourself soberly and you've underestimated your usefulness and because you're so caught up with the depth of your sin that has come more conscious, uh, more uh, registered on your consciousness since your redemption, that you just can't imagine God ever using you, that you're content just to be alive and just be sitting in a pew here, and that's as far as you plan to go because that's so much further than where you ever thought you'd get? Well, let me say to you, you need to have a better assessment of yourself because God's given you serving gifts. He's given you a capacity to profit the church. And if you're withholding that, you're not soberly assessing yourself. And you're not giving yourself to that capacity that the Lord has given you. I don't know if anybody could go through this sampling list that Paul has laid out to us without finding at least one of these that anybody can do. Even if you don't see some evidence of something special in you, anybody in this place willing to say, you have to have something, something neat and special before you can give? What does it take for you to have the gift of giving? It takes You have to have something to give. Time? Money? Heart? A listening ear? We could go infinitely. There are many things that we have that we're not exercising. And I'm saying that if there's no desire to exercise them, or if there were no capacity to give them, that would be evidence that the Spirit is not there. When the Spirit is there, when he indwells a believer, that person wants to serve. The proportion of the Holy Spirit's influence over me 
and in me determines the degree of my spirit of service and the exercise of my gift. The proportion of the spirit influence over me and in me determines the degree of my spirit of service and exercise of gifts. But if I have no spirit of service and there's no desire to exercise gifts, there's a question as to whether the spirit has any influence in me and over me. We're speaking of the ordinary endowment of the spirit of God to the saints for ministry. We're not speaking of extraordinary gifts. We're speaking that every saint is endowed by the Spirit with ordinary ministerial capacity and desire. And if that's not there, it is because he is not there. Where is the Spirit of Christ in a heart which is uninterested in the state and the need of others? Where could Christ be found where there's no heart for others. How could you possibly say, this comes from Christ, whom you know to be the man who laid himself aside for a whole world of undeserving sinners. When he dwells in the heart, you're going to see registered on that heart something, at least, of his spirit, of denying himself and serving others. Is it not in the essence of his invitation to the faith that you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me or you cannot be my disciple. Is it not at the outset of religion that unless you're willing to do that, you can't be saved? Conversion is at least this and more. It is a transformation of a self-centered person into another centered person. Now, there are great degrees of that and in this church there's none of us that have lived up to our capacity. But there is at least something of that in every true saint of God. He is incapable of thinking only of himself because his Redeemer, who did not think of himself but of others, lives within him. That's evidence of the Spirit's indwelling. It is a serious thing not to have something of that desire or to be content with not exercising the gifts of Christ in the church. Well, let me take you to one passage in the book of 1 John by which we will find a little theme in the 1 John where he shows us all three of the elements of evidence that we're seeking to see. 1 John chapter 3. And this is what it boils down to in terms of the, the utilizing of gifts and the ministry. Now, we're not again saying that... We're not talking about a fellow that comes to a church... And he's been used of God or used of another church somewhere and he's been a, a leader or he's had this program, he's been a committee chairman and he comes to a new church and he says, now I have you to know I've got gifts. And I, you, can't, you, you can't wait for me to exercise those gifts here and I can't wait, so where do you want me to serve? And a church is in a position of needing to ascertain the character of the person and needing to see what kind of person we're dealing with here. And so we don't normally recruit leaders. We normally recruit uh, from the response to preaching. And people come and say, how do I get in this thing? And then we go through the process of counsel, etc. We're not speaking of a man taking this doctrine and saying, okay, he says we've got a gift and we're saved. I've got a gift and they're not using me. I tell you that if God gives a gift, there'll be a spot for you. The Bible teaches that a man's gift makes room for him. 
Now what happens sometimes, people overassess themselves and demand to be used on their terms, and when they're not, they run off half-cocked and mad and frustrated. I was here, I had a gift, and you didn't let me. And churches throughout the country are frustrated all the time with that kind of spirit. That gift is, is coupled, brethren, with the concept of mutual need. It is not primarily motivated by, I've got an itch, and I need it scratched. I need to be needed. That's not what we're speaking of. We're thinking first of a concern about what would fit, be needed, and take care of a need. And if it's not the time, fine. I can wait. God's got his time for me. God's got his place for me. But I do desire to be used. I do want the Lord to use me who has saved me for his own glory. Well, in 1 John chapter 10, I look chapter 3, verse 10, I believe that we see the essence of this principle summarized in one word. In this, the children of God are manifest. In what? In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever does not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loves not his brother. I would like to summarize this point of Christian service in the church under the heading of loving the brethren. Because isn't that what Paul does in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians when he wants to straighten up their use of the gifts and their exercise? I show you a more excellent way, and all this about love comes into play. What the exercise of Christian gifts are, or is, is nothing other than loving the brethren. If you love us, brethren, you're going to be available to serve. If you love Christ and the brethren, you're going to utilize gifts. You're going to be grieved that you're doing so poor a job of it. But you're going to be there with a heart for something other than yourself. The love of the brethren. In this, the children of God are manifest. And the children of the devil. If you don't love your brethren. And that's translated. If you don't serve, if you're not thinking of anything but yourself, if it's all taken, no give, the children of the devil and the children of God are manifested in that spirit. I'm well aware. I'm, I've been around long enough to know that in the dynamics of preaching and the hearing of preaching, people take lots of roads in response. And a lot of you all of a sudden are thinking, well, I am relatively selfish, Pastor. I know it. I'm, I've been in on myself for so long, I must not be saved. And I hasten to say, it is possible for you to be in a state in which you have not been good at obeying this principle, where you need drastically to change your attitude, where you need to grow greatly in the love of the brethren, but there would be some element of it in you and not necessarily mean you're not a Christian. I recognize the wide spectrum between mature development of these things and the principle in the heart. However, I would also say, that if you have a real hard time finding the principle in the heart, or if this church has a hard time ever seeing you doing anything voluntarily for anybody but yourself, you do need to ask, am I showing evidence that I'm a child of God or a child of the devil? Brethren, the devil seeks his own. Love seeks not her own. The devil is out for himself and he will use spiritual gifts for his own good. There are those who have gifts of the Spirit who serve themselves with them and not the church. And that's 
a manifestation not of the children of God, but the children of the devil. Love of the brethren. But in the second place, not only when the Spirit indwells a man will he have a desire and capacity for service in God's church, but he also will have a love for and an apprehension of divine truth. We might summarize the first as love of the brethren, being evidence of the Spirit's indwelling. We might summarize the second as being doctrinal orthodoxy. This isn't the only evidence, but it is one that's vital. It would be one thing if we just concentrated on doctrinal orthodoxy and said, oh, we've got our confession of faith straight, we know the truth, we know good theology, and that proves we're Christian. That would be a wrong assessment. That in itself alone is not the only proof. You can have correct doctrine and not know God. However, if we left that out as though it were not evidence, we would be defying Scripture and erring very seriously. Doctrinal orthodoxy is crucial as evidence of the indwelling of the of the Spirit. Turn again to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I mean chapter 12. Verse 3. We read it a bit ago, but it introduces this principle. If the Spirit of God indwells a person, it is impossible for that person to live out a confession that denies Christ or curses Christ. You don't have a blasphemous tongue growing out of a holy heart. One who loves Jesus cannot curse Jesus. And so the life will not be characterized by blasphemy. You can't do that. If men are cursing Christ, they cannot claim to have the Spirit. I believe if this is worked out to its conclusion and expounded properly, lots of implications of this would be worked out clearly to us. I don't believe we have time today, but to say one. Where Christ is verbally confessed to be the Savior, but practically denied in the worship and in the religion of the church, they have cursed him. And this is what we've been dealing with right along in the doctrine of the government of the church. Where Christ's office as head of the church, prophet, priest, and king of the church, and only savior of the church, and his singular sufficient sacrifice is denied in practice. That is not of the Spirit. And it's evidence that the Spirit is not there laboring and doing his work. The Spirit cannot indwell a man and him deny the essence of what it means to be Jesus Christ the Lord. But he also says, that no one can say he is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there's much more to this than just what we have time to express, but what we're essentially saying is there is orthodox confession that flows out of the indwelling of the Spirit. Now there's more, but that essentially is what we're seeing. Confession of Christ properly identified, properly perceived, properly understood is the work of the Spirit. You can't do that without the Spirit, and with the Spirit you must do that. You, it's either Jesus is Lord or he's accursed. And there's no middle ground. And the essential difference is whether you have the Spirit in you or not. Apart from the Spirit, he can't be Lord in your heart. He can't be confessed that way. Apart from the Spirit, you're going to curse him, if, if, if formally or practically. You see the point? Now that's the orthodox foundation. And part of the orthodoxy centers around Christ. 
But turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. Again, to link up all this in 1 John's epistle. And again, you can see all these principles in 1 John. First chapter 4, verse 1. There are lots of spirits in the world, brethren. And apparently they're doing their work in the churches. And apparently they've got influence and people know they're around. So John says we must do something. There's a responsibility laid upon us. And verse 1 tells us, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Just because there's somebody speaking with some animation of something that appears to be good preaching, don't necessarily believe him. But try the spirits. Put them to the test. Prove them. Well, how do you do it? You're trying to find out whether they are of God. And he says, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. You see, a man that's preaching may be a true prophet or a false prophet. But what you're testing, when you're testing his preaching, whether it's false or true, you're essentially testing the spirit behind his preaching. You're trying the spirit. This is a spiritual thing. When men preach false doctrine, they don't get it from God. God doesn't propagate such. When men preach true doctrine, somewhere it can be traced to God. So you try the Spirit. And he says in verse 2, Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Here's the test. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, where you've heard that it comes, and now it is in the world already. A.D. 85. The spirit of Antichrist in the world already. Brethren, he's not just showed up this generation. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. And he goes on to discuss the differences between true believers and false ones. But at the out, at the essence of the discernment between true and false spirits is doctrinal orthodoxy. You say, what is that? That's the proper confession of Christ. He that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. You say, well, that's a very narrow doctrine. Is that all it takes? Because, Pastor, I think that I have seen and read that Rome admits that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So what you're telling me is that they have the Spirit. And all this speaking of apostasy and uh, no church of Christ and the false church and Babylon, that can't be true because they don't they say Jesus Christ has come? They don't deny the flesh of Jesus Christ, do they? Well, not, not in so many words, brethren. But if you learn to interpret Scripture and read carefully the significance of words, I believe you can see there's much more here than may meet the eye. And I'm not reading between the lines. Just work out the words. The Lordship of Christ over everything. 1 Corinthians 12.3 The recognition of His rights as Lord and His exercise as Lord. No one can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Many use the terms, but many don't comprehend what they mean by the terms, and you only can comprehend by the Holy Spirit. And if He's in you, you will have a measure of comprehension. There will be something in the heart that readily bows to the rights of Christ on the throne. And any theology that leads you away from Christ on the throne is not of God. And is anti-Christian. But in addition to the Lordship of Christ, there are some other features of Christ listed here in 1 John chapter 4 that can help with orthodoxy. Listen. His origin. 
he has the word used here is calm in the flesh come from where you see there's a doctrine that assumes itself in this word come he's come from some place he has an origin so involved in this confession that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is an understanding of where he came from he was sent from heaven that was what boggled the brains and confused the hearts of the Pharisees in John chapters 5 and 6. I come down from above. I am the manna. They couldn't stand it. It was a stumbling block. And unless you confess, he did come from above, that he is the Son of the Father, the one God and Father. Unless you see God's errand and his mission of salvation is God's only saving mission, you have not confessed properly Jesus Christ has come. You understand what I'm saying? It's not enough to say, yes, Jesus had a body. Albert Schweitzer believed that. Or he was confused about it. And he tried to figure out if there was a historical Jesus. And there's a big movement in history about that. But there are a lot of folks who believe he lived and died. Some might even admit that he possibly rose from the dead. But coming from God, going to God, with God's only mission that ever was ordained to save the world, they deny that. Throughout the New Testament and from the prophets, you will find that the usage of this concept of coming is a salvation usage. It's a coming with a purpose, sent from God in order to save sinners. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son. I am come from above not to do mine own will, but Him that sent me. Even as my Father has sent me, so send I you. Throughout the Scripture, this terminology of coming implies and assumes a purpose of saving sinners. And it is the only purpose that exists for the saving of sinners. Outside of Christ, there is no salvation. You cannot be saved by the church. You cannot be saved by the sacraments. You cannot be saved by saints. You cannot be saved by Mary. You cannot be saved by your good works. You can be saved by Christ who came to do so. So part of this confession involves much more than admitting he had a body. He is calm. You see that? But then further, his mission, not only his origin, but his mission, he came. He came from God and he had a mission to accomplish. My salvation is in Christ. That confession is essential or it's not the Spirit of God. In the third place, though, the word Christ. Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. That's a bigger word than just a title. It was understood to mean more than just a man who had a last name. Christ is Messiah, anointed one, King of kings, Lord of lords, come from God to occupy David's throne. The, the prophet said, David's throne will be occupied forever. There will be one shepherd over Israel. There will be one king, and they'll bow to him. And all the people of God will come together from the four corners of the earth under David. Well, when you confess Christ has come, you're confessing Messiah. You're confessing King David in the figurative form of the prophets has come and is established on his throne. And all the rights of Christ are ours to claim. We're under his lordship. You see the, the danger of a confession of Christianity that says you can accept Jesus as Savior and not as Lord? 
That is not a New Testament confession of faith. That is an anti-Christian confession of faith. That is a damning heresy. He cannot be Savior and not be Lord. It's impossible for him to be one without the other. He is Lord. The same Lord is rich unto all that call upon him. He is Savior, and when he becomes Savior, it is because he exercises his lordship rights in the heart of one ready to receive those rights. And that confession of Christ involves that. Jesus Christ is calm in the flesh. His humanity. Dear brethren, he's not a figment of our imagination. He is not just a spirit who swooped down and almost touched humanity. He involved himself in our flesh. He bore our sins. He bore them on the, on the cross, all of which was essential for our salvation. We cannot be saved by sitting on the Himalayas thinking of God. You cannot find God through meditation alone. You do not find salvation because you get a key word given to you by one of the avatars and you find a way to God but through your own insight and your own gift. No, no. Jesus came in the flesh where the flesh ruled, where sin lived in its power. It was in that arena that the Son of God condemned sin in the flesh. Adam sinned. Adam must die. A second Adam has come and died and paid Adam's debt and Adam is freed. And apart from that full-blown comprehension of the humanity of Christ, there's no salvation. That's what we're saying. This confession is rich. This is not a shallow narrowing down. As one brother said, well, it doesn't matter what you believe about the sovereignty of God. That's Calvinist. That's their thing. And Arminians have their in, in, input and their contribution to theology. And the Pelagians have their contribution. But the key is, as long as you believe in Jesus. But what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It can't mean, I believe in Jesus as long as there's some power left in me to help him save me. That's not belief in Jesus. That's belief in me in Jesus. To believe in Jesus involves a lot more than walking to the front of a church and signing a card and saying, I believe in Jesus. And the preacher says, you're saved. There must be a whole soul response to the demands of the gospel, recognizing my guilt and sin, my undeservedness, my utter incapacity to do anything about my predicament, and my casting myself on the mercies of God through Christ, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Without that, you'll go to hell. And you can go to hell speaking the name Jesus and testifying the gifts of the Spirit. He that comes not with this confession. And I believe it means this confession of understanding of the significance of the coming of Christ from God as Lord and Savior in the flesh where sin had to be dealt with. He that doesn't confess that to its fullness is not of the Spirit of God. Doctrinal orthodoxy. Now, let me say this, brethren. Now that we've said that, imprecision is possible. And I hope it is. It's obvious that it is. Was not Apollos in need of further instruction? And yet he was mighty in the Scriptures? If any of us ever gets to the place that we think we don't need some further teaching and some further developing of our understanding of truth, then we're in a bad place. That's why some of us are reading more today than we were ten years ago. 
and we're calling, making more phone calls now than we used to make. Not, we learn, we know more, and we're asking more questions because we are aware growingly of how little we know. That's why men who show some evidence of gifts to ministry aren't stuck right into the ministry. They get sent off someplace and have to spend years not making much money and doing a hard work and study under somebody's authority that they don't even know. Because we believe that there's a lot more to this thing than just, uh, I feel led. There's a lot going on, but you can have imprecision. There can be error in the degree of your apprehension of these truths and still be Christian. There can be periods of confusion. There can be unwise statements made by true men. There can be great ignorance in true men. If there can't be, brethren, then where's all the argument coming from? Where are all the different views of theology from men who seem to have the root of the matter in them? There's a reality here. In spite of what we've said about the requirement of orthodox theology, there is room for imprecision, ignorance, and uh, need for growth. Now, you, you may ask, but where do we draw the line? Brethren, that's, that's a very subjective question and answer. It's very difficult to draw the line. At what point do I say, this guy doesn't know enough to me to, for me to consider. He He's an orthodox. That's hard. It's one of the things we have to wrestle with when we're interviewing a prospective member of the church. Does he apprehend in the heart the basic doctrine of what it means to be saved? Justification by faith alone in Christ. That's, that's of critical concern. If that's not there to some measure, <coughs> we cannot put the imprimatur of the church and grant him assurance. We must be careful. But what there cannot be, in my view, is no resolute, stubborn, long-term breaches of fundamental truth in one who is indwelt with the spirit of truth. No resolute, stubborn, long-term breaches of fundamental truth like the godness of God. I cannot imagine a true saint not having some apprehension that God alone is God and he's absolutely God. Brethren, I believe, and if I read my Bible right, that at the point of conversion, that truth is drilled into the conscience. Now, I don't believe that that truth is drilled all the way into the brain. That's why teaching has to take place. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. That you may grow in knowledge and the comprehension. But I believe that in the heart, that is so pressed there that the first time somebody speaks clearly biblically about the sovereignty of God, maybe not even using those terms, the true saint has something in him that answers to that. And I'll put it to you this way, in a practical sense. Some of our brethren who we would consider Arminian or semi-Arminian or whatever you want to tag them, and it's hard to find a man that's purely Arminian in our day, but some of our brethren, or some who may or may not be brethren, who are not comfortable with this concept of the sovereignty of God as they've heard it preached, or usually through a third party as they've heard that it is being preached someplace. And they hear about these people that believe if it's going to, ha it's going to happen whether it does or not, this sort of concept of fatalism and they think that's what we believe they hear about predestination and they say well God's already planned everything out you don't matter you're a robot decision responsibility is irrelevant and they get that myth and they, they're really and so you come to their house one night and you happen to have a little pamphlet and you say have you ever read this the sovereignty of God and immediately he knows what you believe you believe that human responsibility doesn't exist the will of man is non-existent that God's just 
operating and manipulating. And so inside, he grieves that you don't know your Bible. He thinks you got your theology from John Calvin and you didn't get it from the Bible. And he, a fundamentalist, Bible-believing Christian, is grieved over that and automatically wishes he could get you out of your theology into your Bible. That's what's going on in his mind much of the time. And if you're not skilled and somewhat mature in this, you will lead him to believe that. That's why you don't run to your friends and immediately say, Guess what? I learned the new truth and you've got to learn it. You've got to be cautious and know where you fit and how you, where you've earned that right. But what, what happens is they think you're talking about some God someplace who's not God at all. But let me tell you, if you start talking to them about witnessing and soul winning, which topics those men usually love, you ask them to pray. When they get to praying, they'll be saying, Oh, Lord, by grace, save poor sinners. And you'll be able to say, That's the way I believe it. That God's the one that saves sinners, and we want them saved. We're going to have to ask God to save them. And as Arthur Pink says, and as others have said, a lot of men resist Calvinism, but they're Calvinists when they pray. They believe in the godness of God in the heart. The problem may be imprecise teaching, poor presentation, or ignorance and laziness on their part. They may be sinfully lazy. They may not have read what they should have read when they should have read it, and therefore are in error in their understanding. But if they're saved, the godness of God is at the root of their heart. They have no problem thinking that if they're Christians, it's because God saved them. It's the Spirit that says, how dare you take away from me my autonomy and give it to God. That's the Spirit that's not of God. It's that stubborn, resolute resistance to these truths, even when they are clearly, graciously, and over a period of time presented. And the person says, I could never believe in a monster who decides ahead of time who he's going to say. Brethren, there's great danger in that kind of statement. And I've got it in print in one of the books in my study. I only kept it so I could prove it if anybody ever challenged me. A monster who would choose ahead of time who he's going to say. Well, brethren, we've got to watch it. The godness of God. The necessity of the atonement of Christ because of the sin of men. Men that deny the atonement is necessary or say it's one of the ways. They're denying orthodox truth that is basic to saving religion. Jesus had to die or you can't be saved. And if you don't believe that, you're not saved. That's what I'm saying. The sufficiency of that atonement that you don't need anything in addition to that. The Apostle Paul in Galatians said, If any man preach to you any other gospel than the one we've preached, which is, in Galatians, the gospel of the sufficiency of Christ alone, if any preach any other gospel, let him be cut off from Christ and accursed. Though an angel from heaven preach another gospel than the one we preach, let him be accursed. Somebody said, well, that's dogmatic. You better believe it. And it better be dogmatic. I would say another thing. In the heart, when the indwelling spirit has come, there is a basic conviction that the Bible is the word of God with full authority. And I don't even know how to explain how many ways you'll see that expressed in the various expressions of Christian life. Because there's a wide spectrum of people's perception of what that means. But I tell you, something in the heart keeps going back to this book for its authority. And if that's not there to some degree, 
the Holy Spirit has not done the work of regenerating the mind. The authority and authenticity of Scripture didn't say the comprehension and understanding of Scripture. I didn't say no questions left about the Bible. I just said there's something in the heart of hearts of a saved man that trusts that the Bible is the Word of God and it has final authority in his faith in his life. I don't know how we can compromise that point and be anywhere led but to destruction. Well, let me rush quickly to the third element of, of evidence, and this is critical. First, a desire and a capacity for service in God's church. Second, a love for and apprehension of divine truth. And third, a pursuit of and growth in holy living. Fruit. Summarized this way. The person in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells will see, and others will see in him, ethical transformation and renewal. There will be a change in the way he acts, the way he thinks, the way he feels toward himself, toward God, and toward other people. And it will grow, and he will be pursuing that growth all his days. Where there's not this pursuit of holiness, where there's not this some progress in it over the years, there is no Holy Spirit. Where there is the Holy Spirit, there is the pursuit of and growth in. And I say that because I don't want some of you to say, well, Pastor, the Lord knows I sure do want to be holy. I'm pursuing it. Haven't made a lick of progress in 23 years. Probably never will. I've got some sins that you just can't give up. I've got some sins the Lord doesn't even expect me to give up. But He knows that I would like to if I thought I could. No place for that in the Christian life. The Christian is incapable of making that kind of statement and meaning it. Something in him says, I've got to get rid of this. And he, it's in him. he tries all kinds of ways in his life to escape it. He tries to find theologies that will accommodate him. Christians are capable of this. And they can go into great error for a period of time, but something in them keeps warring against that fleshly confession and that fleshly pursuit of freedom, and they cannot love their sin, though they would like to be able to justify something that they can't quite get rid of. They continue to look at it, and they don't like it. They're uncomfortable with it. They don't like themselves. They would love to be free. Sometimes through ignorance, they don't think they could be free, and they sort of give up on it, but not because they wouldn't love to get rid of it and because they're not fighting it. There's pursuit of holiness. And there's growth. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. And I believe that to spare your flesh and recognizing your entire redeemed humanity, I'll just read this and summarize and at a later time break this down because this material needs to be broken down. Galatians 5 verse 22. He's laid out a basic contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. There are only two kinds of things going on in the world. There's the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Two kinds of behavior, fleshly and spiritual. Now, in the non-Christian, there are sometimes possible good moral acts. But in the non-Christian, it is incapable for him to live with a pattern of those things flowing from the heart. Even when he does good, they will be for wrong and ungodly motives. In the Christian, it is possible for him to commit 
some of these fleshly acts. It's possible for him to commit any number of them, any one of them. He is not incapable of sinning in any one of these listed things. Christians still have idols lurking in their hearts, and once in a while they go to them. Christians still have pride. Christians still have unbelief. There's not an area of the Ten Commandments that Christians are not capable of breaking at some time or other. And I personally believe always are in the process of breaking them somewhere in the body, in the heart. That living in non-conformity to the perfection of the law of God. I think that's an understatement. That's why scripture speaks of loathing yourselves in Ezekiel after the Spirit of God comes. But brethren, he makes the contrast between two kinds of life, and there can be no middle ground. Though Christians are capable of fleshly acts, and though fleshly men are capable of some acts that would be sometimes associated with Christians, there is such a difference between the two that you can see the discerning patterns set in. And he lists them. He lists some of the works of the flesh in verse 19. Verse 20, verse 21, and if you'll be a, do a good study of that list, you'll be astounded that he's just about covered your case. And then in verse 22 he says, but, and here's the contrast, that great holy conjunction, but the fruit of the Spirit, if you've got the Spirit, these other things will not predominate. You'll not be characterized by the things we've just listed, because the Spirit doesn't produce those things. Here's what he produces. Love Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Against such there's no law. What he's saying is if you're practicing those things, there's no law against them. If that's the way you're living, there's no law in the Bible that condemns you. Because those things fulfill the law. But he describes a sort of sampling, this ninefold sampling of the fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit dwells within you, there will be long-term progress in true religion manifested in ethical renewal, moral transformation. The Christian's life will know frequent repentance, but it'll be real repentance. There will be areas of great difficulty, tension, frustration, but there will never be, in the true believer, ultimate despair and giving up to another way. He cannot sin that way, because the seed remains in him. He is born of God. The true believer will be here years from now, Goes through many lapses in between. When I say here, I don't mean geographically. Wherever God's people meet and the truth is pursued, the Christians can't get away from it. They went out from us, John says, because they were not of us. If they had been of us, no doubt they would have remained with us. He's not speaking geographically. He's speaking theologically, ethically. They couldn't stand, John says, the ethical implications of the gospel and the theological demands upon their conscience. So they left eventually. Now sinners can stay a long time in a church. Preachers can stay a long time in a church. It makes me tremble for myself every time I think of it. You can preach the gospel for years. Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. Well, how many years did he serve the gospel loving this present world? But it wasn't fully manifested until later on. 
Men can wear things in their hearts and cover them up for you. And Christians can flirt around with the old things of the flesh. But the sinner cannot endure to the end. He'll finally get found out. He'll finally lose it. And the saint cannot give up finally. He will ultimately be renewed to repentance every time. Maybe not to our specs on our timetable, but in God's timetable. Well, let me suggest that this progress in holiness is going to be seen in the two sides that we read in Colossians chapter 3. On the one side, the killing of sin perpetually. Look at Galatians 5.24. They that are of Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with the passions and the lust thereof. If the Spirit of God dwell in you, that, that is equated with being belonging to Christ, what have you done? You have crucified the flesh. Now, what does that mean? Well, I side with most of the good commentators at this point. It means that as far as you're concerned, you've taken that old man and you've nailed him up to the cross with the full intent that he is to perish. Now, crucifixion is a painful and a slow death, but it is an inevitable death. You don't hang people on the cross planning to make them suffer for a while and then bring them down. You put on the cross to kill them. But the process is lengthy and difficult. Well, that's where we are as saints. We have nailed the old man to the cross. That's definitive sanctification. That's the radical cleavage with sin. That's been done, and our minds are in full agreement with that. We love it to be so. We long for the day when that thing hanging there will ultimately breathe its last. But in the process, there's agony. That thing doesn't want to die. The flesh lusts against the spirit. But the spirit lusts against the flesh. In the true thing, there will be this constant war against that old man who has been nailed to the cross, but who doesn't want to die, and the saint will be continually speeding up the death of all the works of the flesh. The mortification of sin, killing sin, is the mark of a true Christian. Not just suggesting the sin that it might die someday, but killing it. He who, through the belief of the truth, has the mind in him which was in Christ, is in the degree in which he has this mind in him, good and happy, filled with benevolence, happy in himself, rejoicing in the happiness of all around him, at peace with God and himself, disposed to be at peace with all men, not easily provoked, even by continued ill usage, mild in his temper and manners, distinguished by unbending integrity and inviolable fidelity, gentle to the infirmities of others, and if severe in anything, severe to himself, in guarding against every approximation to sinful indulgence. That's John Brown's comment. And here's another. Other men may chastise the flesh, but it is only they that are Christians that crucify it. Perhaps the most distinguishing mark of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is this ongoing obvious progress in holiness 
the getting rid of every element of contradiction to that which is Christian and pure and holy and the fighting against it without relent, relenting and the element of cultivating regularly the, the graces that correspond to that life. Putting off the old man, putting on the new man, constantly. Brethren, if that is not your regular portion, that war and your commitment to win that war by the grace of God through his indwelling spirit in Jesus' name, it is because the spirit does not indwell you. If you see any area of sin in your life and something in your heart of hearts has not set itself against it, it is probable that that is because the spirit of God has not done the work of salvation in you. Because the saint hates sin in every one of its manifestations and is unwilling to declare truth with any element or aspect of it. You cannot do it. Now, is there anything in your life to which you said, knowing that it contradicts biblical religion, I'm not going to deal with that? For whatever reason, the other people haven't dealt with it, or I ain't dealing with that till he deals with it, or, I can't figure that out anyway. It's too big for me. Why would God even require it? Or as some young people think, why would God give me these desires and then demand me not to express them? And we're living in the age of full expression of everything except Christianity. I tell you, if you have declared a truth with any known sin, you need to ask seriously whether you bear the marks of the indwelling spirit. Because the Spirit of God puts upon the registration of the roots of the heart hatred against sin wherever it sticks its face up. And you see, if you have that hatred, and if you are committed to that pursuit, and if you've nailed that thing to the cross and are intending its full destruction, you will show progress in your life against it. And the reason some do not show progress is because they've never yet nailed it up. They've flirted with it. They've said, you know, if you keep this up, I could crucify you. They chat with their sins. They confess them like they're admitting them to God as though he didn't know. They have a running conversation about it. I need to pray about this. But they've never taken the resolute position of Christian manhood or womanhood and said, dead, killed. As far as I can do, I'm going to kill this thing and I'm going to cultivate its replacement in virtue. By God's grace, Lord, make me holy. That's why you have seen in this church, and you'll see in other churches similar to this church, a growing crescendo in its Wednesday night prayer meetings when men pray. There'll be increasing prayers that sound humble and crying for grace to deal with sin. You won't see that the more mature a church gets, the less it talks about its sins and the less it confesses them and the less it cries for grace, you'll see just the opposite. You see what we're saying? Dear brethren, if you fit the category here who have made a statement to your soul that there is a sin you're going to keep, I tell you, that sin will lead you by the throat into the pit of hell. The only hope you have is to turn to Christ who alone has the power to deliver you 
to say no to that sin or all that sin and the principle beneath that sin and to cry to God for mercy and plunge yourself at the feet of Christ and believe on him. If you do so, the Bible promises that God will give you the spirit and the spirit will equip you to mortify that sin and deal with it. May God give us grace to understand not to play games with the evidences of the indwelling spirit but to see ourselves as responsible if we claim to be Christian, to be in service to the church, to be clear and orthodox in our confession, and to be people who bear the marks of fruitfulness in holy living and pursuit. May we pray together. Our Father, in our very hearts, even as we hear these things preached, there are certain specifics that your spirit raises up before the specter of our eyes to remind us that we need to be dealing against things that contradict our profession. And remaining in our hearts, O Lord, are some areas of resistance. We are a stubborn lot and we have loved our sins. We would pray that you would so sort out the issues of truth in us that we would be able to see our true state, that we would be given hearts that hate every expression of sin and that love every expression of righteousness. Lord, save us from trying to fulfill the fruit of the Spirit so that we could be saved. Help us to understand that only by your Spirit can those fruit come. We would pray that you would help us to see that we have the Spirit by virtue of faith in Christ. So turn us away from the sin of self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-seeking, and transform us into holy people who show the marks of real progress in the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, we pray you take up the slack left in preaching, that your Holy Spirit might search our hearts, and that Christ might become more precious to us, who labor in this world with our remaining corruption. And we pray that any who sit in our midst this morning, who are strangers to grace, whether in the church or out, whether deceived or never having thought about it, we ask that you would open up the gates of truth and light and save the sinner. Lord, we cry to you and leave our case with you and ask for mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.